Hey everybody, welcome to Row Honey Resources Podcast. All right, it is actually Monday morning. Um, yeah, I know. Some of you are probably headed into work going, where the heck is the podcast? Well, it's right here, people. It's right here. Being recorded as we speak. Now, I did record um, last night, um, but like that, like my Instagram post said, just, oh, it's been a week. It has been a week. And so I was out late getting stuff ready, getting, I was just getting, getting my head right to sit in the studio to podcast. And then, so I took the dogs for a late walk and then realized that we were in the middle of a, or beginning of a lunar eclipse. So yeah, it was just nice to be able to just stand out there, just beautiful night. Just, I mean, you couldn't have asked me. Perfect temperature, no wind, crystal clear. Um, Yeah, it was just nice to just get out there and just kind of. Oh, yeah, get your head right sometimes, man. You know, it's, it's not anything different than any of you have to deal with on a weekly basis, but there are times when it just seems like life just throws everything at you. You know, everybody always jokes about the fact, you know, when I ever, anytime, if I was to meet you, you know, everybody asks you, like, hey, Chris, what's up? And my response has always been, Everything, all at once, and that's just how my life has been. I it, ever since we graduated, Kelly and I graduated college, and started our business, and we've had multiple different. We, we we've had multiple businesses <clears throat> and ventures and things we've been dabbling in. And so it's just it's nonstop. It's just it, it. This is how it's been for the past twenty some, twenty some years now. Twenty probably going on, well, for us, at least 23 years, but regardless, there are no days of the week. There are no nine, there's no, you know, punch a time clock in and then punch a time clock out and then go home and just sit and relax and, yeah, no, that that just doesn't happen. It just, just hardly ever happens. It's just, we just go. And so this week, I've been scrambling trying to get, you know this, I've, I've been tra- scrambling trying to get <clears throat> uh, a bunch of the habitat stuff done because this this spring, <clears throat> it's been brutally dry. And it's it, we, we are still at a deficit. Don't get me wrong. We are still at a, a significant deficit. But we have caught some moisture these past couple of weeks, which has been awesome. <clears throat> and... My voice was doing well. <clears throat> and, and and the other thing, too, as I've talked about before, is not all, you know, you can go 30 miles down the road and be in a completely different world as far as moisture cycles, weather patterns, soils, everything else going on uh, around that from with regard to habitat stuff. So it's just been dry, which we know. Uh, hold on. I've got, hold on. I've got a visitor coming Belly, what are you doing, man? <laughs> Hold on, buddy. <laughs> my cat has somehow... I didn't realize my door was not locked or not shut. And so he has somehow weaseled his way into the garage, and now he's ent- He's just letting himself in. Hold on. Belly, what are you doing, man? Come here. <laughs> 
didn't, I didn't realize my my door wasn't latched, and I didn't realize he was in the garage. So he just he just pushes it open with his paw, and he's like, "Hey, sup?" <laughs> but anyway, so it's been dry. Um, we've been wanting the moisture, but the biggest thing has been is it's been windier and all oh, get out into where you just can't. I mean, you can't spray. You can't spray herbicide when it's windy like that. Weeds don't care. They're just going to keep growing. Cheatgrass doesn't care. It's going to keep growing. And the cheatgrass, because it's been dry, is, it went out, went to seed early. So that's been a, a problem. So it's just been a challenge. So when you do have um, good days, good weather days, man, it's just all in. Just, just scrambling to try to just get as much done as you can. And then, of course, you invariably you're going to have equipment malfunctions and failures and breakages and that type of stuff. And then other projects are miraculously going to have to have be, you know, something's going to happen where that's the day that you have to tackle other things and keeps you out of the field. And so it's just been a scramble. And the other day, uh, working on a gentleman's property east of here, it's about an hour and a half east of me and just rocking and rolling. It was, it was one of those perfect days. I had all the equipment with me got out there. I'm like, yes, this is going to be awesome. There was a, there was a chance of, you know, thunderstorms in the area. Not a big, not, not a big deal. They had, and, and I've already been delayed on getting out to this property by a couple weeks now, just because of the weather, either way too windy or they would get rain because they get a lot more rain east of us. They would get rain to where it would just make everything muddy around there to where you, you you're just tearing stuff up more than you are doing anything beneficial so we've got some time so especially given what we want to plant out there we've got some time so i was like all right we'll just put it off a day put it off a day i'll put give it two days let it dry out all right not a problem and so here we go finally get out there where it's just absolutely gorgeous weather i'm out there just cranking rocking and rolling all of a sudden i look up and yeah, there's some storm clouds building on the western horizon there. I'm like, all right, well, I got one more, one north of me, and I got one kind of south of me. I looked at the weather. Yeah, it's supposed to go by me. No, not a big problem. Just keep plugging along. Plug along, plug along, plug along. All of a sudden, Kelly texts me, and she's like, you know, I don't remember what she said, but, you know, this frowny face or whatever on, you know, emoji. I text her, I'm like, what's going on? And she sends me this video. And our house and the garden and every, I mean, the garden was looking beautiful, just perfect. Landscaping was just coming in beautiful. It's now we've got some shrubs and some plants that have been in there, you know, for a couple of years now to where they're nice and mature. And that, I mean, they were just going. Everything was just awesome. The yard was looking great. I had just mowed the yard. Everything was just awesome. We got our butts ever living we 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 got pounded i the hailstorm that came in brutal from dime to quarter size hail at our place uh some of our neighbors on the east end of town were saying that they were actually picking up some golf ball size uh hail and i'm not just saying like you know oh we caught up there was a little hail no i mean this the the yard was white like as in like an inch deep of just hail, inch or more deep of just hail. All our garden plants just molested to where they're going to have to, everything's going to have to be replanted, period. Tomato plants are gone. All of Kelly's brand new flowers and stuff, you know, annuals that 
she wanted she got put in and everything looked yeah they're they're just shredded our trees that were looking so nice just shredded them now granted this is here i'm talking about you know just garden stuff that can be you know easily addressed some of our neighbors um caught it with their vehicles i feel i always feel bad about livestock in that in those situations cuz ugh if you if if can, can you imagine just having to stand out in a pasture and just eat golf ball or bigger size hail just pummeling you oh that's got to suck luckily our horses were in and they they were under the shelter uh, but so i say that so she sends me that little video and I'm like goodness gracious I'm like I wonder if that's the storm I'm looking at north so I pull around the corner and I'm up on it I come up to the top of the hill and I look and yeah the storm that was that just hit our place is the one that was north but I never realized that I've got this massive wall of black headed right at me so it was just a mad. So I had to, I got chased out of there. I got a mad scramble to get. I, I I did it. I barely got out of the property. Got onto the asphalt road, and that sucker hit. Luckily, I was able to get myself through the storm to a spot where there was a little break between the two thunder cells, to where I was able to park on the side of the road and weather it out, and didn't get any didn't didn't get any hail, which was nice, but. Um, yeah, so I got chased off the property uh, on, what was that, Saturday? Because then yesterday, and it, yeah, got back home Saturday night and realized how bad everything was and then spent yesterday just cleaning up and just taking inventory of what we got and what we need to redo and then realized that a bunch of our gutters on the garage had gotten damaged, so I had to fix a bunch of those and ended up being an all-day project, and here I am now. So it was just a, anyway, didn't get was not I, I hit record on the podcast last night I recorded one and then there's some people that say you know do your podcast record it and then just just upload it don't listen to it because if you if you listen to your podcast then you know there's always things that you don't like there's always things that you could do better there's always things that especially for a perfectionist you know or if you're OCD you're going to look at it and you're going to listen to it or whatever and you're not going to like it. Well, I, I, I want to change this. I want to change this. So you never get one actually uploaded and published. I'm kind of, ha- I, 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 I buy into about half of that. Um, Cause there is, there, there is that issue of perfection and, and always wanting it to be as good as it always can be and, or it could be, and you'll never achieve that. So at some point you just got to hit upload and just send it and, it is what it is. But last night, I it just wasn't flowing. It just, my mind wasn't in it. There were so many other things going on in my mind. There were so many other things that I was still wrestling with that I just was like, okay. And and I'm going to, Sonny, I, I recorded it. Started, started editing it last night, and then I realized this now. I just am not happy with it. So that's why I'm, I scrapped it, and here I am talking with you again today. Um, <clears throat> some of the stuff will be uh, the same stuff as I talked about last night. But one of the, the cool things is there's two well two things that um, being delayed was nice that I can share with you. Um, 
one, let's just tackle it. And well, let, let me so I don't forget it. The on Instagram, somebody asked me about professional organizations, sportsmen's organizations, and which ones do I support? Which ones do I like? Because it's hard to it's hard to know. Um, <clears throat> that's going to be a hard choice, man. It's it's going to be up to you on on what your value set is and what you want your money to go to. Do you want your money to go to sportsman's advocacy, or do you want your money to go to conservation of species? And those sometimes and oftentimes and rightfully so, based on the way that the organizations need to be set up, they're they're what they're completely different organizations. Um, the ones that you know, I've always supported. And I need to re-up my membership. I know it's lapsed, but you know, National Wild Turkey Federation has been one that is from a conservation organization. At least they are putting some decent dollars on the ground uh, to move the needle on turkeys. Again, not all not all of these organizations are going to be perfect. There are problems within within each one um, that you don't have to agree with everything, or you know, just because you disagree with some doesn't mean you just throw them out. You know. Th- basically throw the baby out with the bathwater. You got to take it as it is. These organizations are dynamic organizations led by a dynamic group of people to where you're probably not always going to agree with what they're doing or why they're doing it. The good ones will listen to their membership. The good ones will pull their membership and reach out to their membership and get input from their membership and they will listen to their membership. And those that's always that's always good. So from conservation organizations, the ones that always have, have hit my radar, the ones I've supported, um, definitely the Quality Deer Management Association, which is now the National Deer uh, Association. That one, absolutely. For whitetails, they've done a phenomenal job from a conservation education standpoint. I don't think, I don't think they, I, they are unmatched as far as I'm concerned in the United States for what they've actually done from a conservation and education standpoint. The Quality Deer Management Association, which is now the National Deer Association. They are phenomenal. National Wild Turkey Federation has got to be right up there with them as well. Pheasants Forever slash Quail Forever. They've always been somebody that I've supported. Um, I have been a supporter on and off with Elk Foundation over the years. I... Do they do some good stuff? Yes. Do they put money on the ground? Yes, they do. But like I said, there's some, you know, here I'm going to go against what I just said. You know, I, there's been some fundamental things that I disagree with and I don't know. <clears throat> but, you know, overall, I mean, they are pretty much still to this day the only, they're the largest elk conservation, you know, education type uh, organization out there and pretty much the only. Um, <clears throat> but, Anyway, so Elk Foundation out there. Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society is one that I've been involved or a member of and I'm a life member of. Um, they're another one. If you like bighorn sheep, you know, everybody talks about FNAZ or, or Foundation for North American Wild Sheep. They're they're an awesome organization. I just have never spent much time uh, with them or doing anything with them or spending, you know, just paying attention to them. But <clears throat> for me in Colorado... Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, it seemed like we were able to put some serious money on the ground very rapidly on very targeted projects that, um, yeah, I mean, we were, I mean, now, uh, uh, Wild Sheep Foundation, um, Fanaz or whatever, they throw serious money on the ground as well. Um, But 
for me, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society has always been one that I've, I've maintained just staying in touch with. And, and again, I'm a life member on that one. So from a conservation standpoint, it, uh, it all depends what your value set is. I've never been a, a, membership, a member of Ducks Unlimited, um, not because I don't like the organization. Again, I've got some issues with some of the past stuff that they've done, but I just don't duck hunt. I just, I just don't do a lot of waterfowl stuff. So it just really doesn't hit my radar screen that much. Um, so it's not that I don't support them, but if I had to choose a waterfowl organization, I would probably go Delta Waterfowl before I did Ducks Unlimited, just from a philosophical um, ideology, ideological standpoint. I try to find those organizations that mesh a little bit better with my ideology. I'm I'm a more conservative-minded individual, um, process-oriented. I, uh, you, I, you've heard me say it. I have zero, zero use for progressive ideologies. Uh, those people that believe ends justify the means. Um, and some of these organizations that I do not engage in actively or maintain memberships with, have demonstrated uh, in the past uh, a sizable leaning towards that more progressive ideology where it is what it is. Anyway, so conservation organizations, Quality Deer Management Association, National Deer Association, whichever one you want to still call them. They are the National Deer Association now. That's awesome. NWTF, Pheasants Forever, Bighorn Society, those are the big ones I stay, I stay active with um, <clears throat> or try to stay active with. From a political standpoint, uh, that one's going to be tricky. The best thing that I can say is for my value set, I look for those organizations that actually have lobbyists. I look for those organizations that actually have boots on the ground and people that are engaged with uh, engaged in making connections, connections with state legislators, connections with wildlife commissions, um, connections with other lobbyists and what's going on in Washington. So, and the reason being is because in my opinion, and it's not just my opinion, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to be, I'm going to couch it there. In my opinion, those are the organizations that are going to move the needle more consistently uh, and with a little bit greater amount of wisdom uh, behind what's going on and, and who the players are and making those relationships so that they have long-term credibility in the political arena over time. So that way, when an issue comes up and they show up and they're like, we do not support this, people understand that, oh, it actually means something. Um when you got these organizations that are involved in every little fight everywhere all the time, it can really dilute the actual message and it can dilute your credibility. My opinion, it can dilute the credibility of the organization because you just, if you're just fighting everything all the time, simply because, you know, it's a, it's an idea that someone that you don't agree with came up with. Well, you do, you, you start losing credibility and people just dismiss you. Um, and I'll just leave it at that for right now. We can have discussion about political stuff uh, later on. But for me, political organizations, Safari Club International has always done a phenomenal job uh, with what they do 
with their lobbying and, and sportsman uh, advocacy efforts. Um, I do. Uh, I am a member of the Sportsman's Alliance. And again, I don't agree with everything that they're doing. However, they are one of those organizations that has boots on the ground. They have people in place. They have attorneys. They have lobbyists. They have people that are making those relationships, uh, getting out there, meeting people, talking with people, talking to diverse people, and figuring out what the actual issue is, who the players are, how do we move the needle on things, and, and they're, they're largely doing a good job. So, yes, I, just, I support those, those guys. If I was in Colorado, I would absolutely be support and probably you know what I, I I say that and then I just caught myself I should probably it doesn't matter if I'm not in Colorado right now I probably should uh what is it Coloradans for responsible wildlife management uh wildlife is that what it is I I'm I apologize I just I just remembered okay I'm not in, you know again I'm not in Colorado anymore so I I have not let me see if this I'm not uh, uh typing it in but you know it'll it'll come up and I'll get the right name yeah I was I was right Coloradans for responsible wildlife management um save the hunt colorado.com <clears throat> Coloradans for responsible wildlife management uh likewise these guys are doing some good stuff cuz they've got they're led by folks that uh, that have connections uh, that are out there. Um, they're meeting the commissioners. They're meeting the legislators. They're talking with them, making relationships, having conversation. Dan Gates uh, has done a great job, I think, in my opinion, just from the outside looking in, uh, you know, watching what they're doing. Uh, they're involved. They're involved with the commission. They're involved, the, the Wildlife Commission, the Parks and Wildlife Commission at the state, they are involved with the state legislature. They're down there having conversations. They're down there talking with people, understanding what the issue is, and they're in there, in the trenches. They're actually working to move the needle. All right, so that's who I'm, if I'm going to look at a political style type of organization to send my money to, I want to know that they are led by somebody that knows what the hell's going on who's been in the arena for a while and has boots on the ground. That that's my threshold for am I going to send that or that organization money. Um and again, I'm going to I'm going to lean towards the ideology that best fits my ideology, which is process oriented um type of political advocacy, not the emotional ends justify the means type advocacy. So whatever that means for you uh, in oops, in your, hold on. <clears throat> Let me just do this a minute because it came up. I've got it right here. What am I, what are you doing, Ro? Come on, come on. You already start pushing buttons and then just, it's like where, what, how, why? Uh, bump, bump, bump. Glued, screwed, and tattooed. You're the one that uh, sent that question. And it could be a... De yes. So the, the question was, or a thought for a podcast topic that I truly like to hear a, quote, Chris Rowe deep dive on, and this follows your last podcast on hunting, is hunting conservation. As a hunter who lives in all forms of hunting but considers bow hunting my forte, what organizations are the best bang for your buck to join in? 
Is joining your home state's hunting organization enough, or do you join Pope and Young, Boone and Crockett, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, CBA, RMEF, question marks? I want to put my money where my mouth is, but I also want my money to work as hard as I do. I appreciate your opinion. So I hope that helps. And I agree wholeheartedly. You don't, it, it, there's so many different places you can send your money. You want to make sure your money is actually doing something. And, you know, quite honestly, just because it's doing something, you know, an organization's quote unquote doing something doesn't mean they're doing the right thing. Doesn't mean they're, they're actually helping the situation and move the needle. Um, so you're, you are very wise to be critical on where you want to spend your money. So I would say, don't take, I mean, again, you know, I'm actively involved in whitetail management. There's a reason why I like, you know, I'm, I'm engaged with the National Deer Association and what used to be Quality Deer Management Association. But they are incredible. I mean, they are a massively influential organization that has done just in I again I don't know if there's anybody that's out there that is has has moved the needle on conservation and education of conservation of a species management of a species and education of the public and their membership surrounding the conservation and management of a species than National Deer Association has <clears throat> likewise National Wildlife Turkey Federation. Look at what they do and, and the money they put on the ground. Yes, we can have issues with local chapters versus national chapters and blah, 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 blah. Okay, but by and large, overall, what is the what is the organization done to put money on the ground? You could say the same thing about Elk Foundation. Again, I've got some philosophical differences of Elk Foundation. I, I, I support them. I, I'm lit. Hell, I'm I'm literally going, and this is one of the things I wanted to uh, mention, and I guess I'll tell you right now. I'm literally going and doing a joint um, seminar promotion with the Kansas City chapter of the Elk Foundation here in two weeks. So in June four was it June fourth? I said I'm I'm doing a, a you know June usually is when I kick off my elk stuff. I start doing more elk related stuff. Um. We're going to kick that off at Overton's Archery Center in Lawrence, and it's going to be a, a tandem with the Elk Foundation. I love some of the, I, I mean, that's, if, if it, as long as the people in the organizations, how do I want to put this? Boots on, uh, boots on the ground and money on the ground. That's what I want. That's where I want my conservation dollars going. I want, I want boots on the ground and I want, I want conservation dollars going on the ground. Elk Foundation still does a, a a good deal of that. Delta waterfowl. Like I said, I'm not a big waterfowler guy, but Delta is right up there all the time. And then if you were looking, for, and those are national ones. And if you look at your state, just just look at the organizations in your state and and who is actually on the ground working in a, in tandem with your own values. Um, that that are building those relationships and and moving the needle versus those organizations that are just constantly drumming up um, sensationalism, emotionalism, just to get your membership dollars, just to get you to click on there, click this, click that, click this, who click here, click. Man, no, I I, I want to have I want to be able to see where my money's going and 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 know that it matches my philosophy. So. Hopefully that helps you out. If and we can, we can. It, it, one of these days, we can we can do a deep dive on some organizations a little bit more if you want. Um, but anyway, 
it was funny that that question came in because I was going to sit here and, and talk a little bit about, um, and I guess I can segue to it. So, uh, like I said, I am a member of Sportsman's uh, Alliance. Again, I don't agree with all the things that they are, you know, everything that, that you know, they, they do, which is, that's fine. But one of the interesting things that they have just recently done, and if you are a member, you have probably gotten the, you know, the Sportsman's Advocate. They have, they now have their own publication. It's a magazine. And it's a very well made. I mean, it's very full of pictures, glossy pages, um, good art. So basically what it is, is a way for them to share more information about political issues, you know, action items going on across the United States, uh, basically able to, to, to share more details about it. So you, if you follow them on, you know, social media, you're going to get the action alerts and you're going to get the, the real short, you know, I, I guess if you will, sensationalized headline of what's going on. And, and if you've followed them and you followed me, you know that I've chimed in and I've pushed back on some of the stuff in the past, but again, it's not that I don't su- support them. It's just, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's dialogue. But anyway, so I get this magazine and, and part of me, part of me's, you know, I, I look at it and I'm like, well, f- number one, these guys are, are, they're looking ahead. They're, they're, they're seeing what's going on around them in the political arena. All the stuff that's coming down the line as far as, uh, you know, attacks towards hunting and consumptive use style, a lifestyle, if you will. And so they need to get more information out to people. They, they need to be able to reach more people. And they, they need to really uh, put their best foot forward to maintain good membership. And so that way it allows them to continue to have boots on the ground in Washington, D.C. And, and around the country. Well... <clears throat> having a mag- magazine like this, I like the idea because it is sharp. It is it it, it is um, well done. Um, I don't know if I need the sensationalized picture on the front with a wolf, you know, tearing into a deer carcass, just looking menacingly. I, just, I me, I don't respond to that emotionalism. I really don't. It turns me off. But regardless, that's the thing that's nice about it is, is I can go through here and and I can get a better uh, understanding of what some of these topics are. So it, it rather than just your your social media information, now there's a at least a publication that can provide a little bit of a deeper dive on some of these topics. And so I can learn a little bit more about it. So that I do like. But then the flip side is, is like I was kind of dismayed to see them actually do the publication because it's like, man, that costs money. You know, I know, I mean, back when Colorado Bow Hunters Association Colorado Bow Hunters Association wanted to move away from just its newsletter style um magazine, if you will, where it was just, you know, paper. Um, and they wanted to go to a glossy cover and they wanted to do or not no, sorry, sorry, not no, no, sorry. Not not Colorado Bow Hunters Association, Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society. Rocky Mountain Bighorn Society, I was on the board of directors then when they wanted to transition from their old style newsletter to uh, an actual magazine. And there's obviously benefit costs and benefits to it, but the costs are real. I mean, it, it costs money. I mean, this is very well done. This So this is the Sportsman's Advocate, the official publication of Sportsman's Alliance. Um, it's very well done. I mean, it's full, it's full color, glossy, 
Lots of, I mean, at lot just, I mean, it is, it is well done. That isn't cheap. You've got to have, pay somebody to put that together. You got to pay somebody to have articles in there. You, you, you've got to have. I mean, you've got somebody that's out there drumming up advertisers. You've got, and then you've got the physical material of the magazine as well. That is not cheap. And then you've got to mail it. So there's money being used that is not being put on the ground. That that money is being used to essentially get more money for me. Essentially, it's it's keeping me in the loop. What's going on and and providing me something ooh ah shiny to look at and and read and to dive into to where I can say okay yeah I, I'm I'm going to keep supporting the, the company. I mean or the organization. It, it's just one of those catch twenty twos. You you've got to do things to stay relevant. You got to do things to to be able to better uh, message to your public and your your membership. But that just eats away at money that's actually getting to be used to put on the ground. So I don't know. I'm guess I'm torn in there. But um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll we'll see where we'll see where this goes. Um. I can see a lot. I can just just some of the articles in here and some of the pictures in here. I'm like, okay, you you clearly chose the most emotionally evoking picture that you could to get you to read that article. Which, okay, fine, whatever. <clears throat> but anyway, I figured I'd answer that question. Um, and then because it, it was going to come up anyway, I was I was going to talk about that publication uh, and this organization anyway. Um, the other one that the other thing too that that happened this morning that I find interesting is, and I don't know if this is the case. And man, I am I am cautiously. Uh, let's just say I'm hopeful. I'm 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 initially hopeful right now. So obviously, you know, we talked about the fact that you were. A, I'm doing all my deer prep and deer stuff right now, okay? And part of that, getting some trophy rocks out, getting some game cameras out to start monitoring the typical buck, you know, hangouts, you know, the the buck core areas that we have just to see, you know, get an inventory of, of who we have on the landscape and what, what things are looking like to you know, going to be shaping up for fall. Now, meanwhile, I'm getting all our food plots and everything, summer food plots and everything ready to go and, and trying to scramble to get project's done well if you remember from last fall last winter kept talking about this ancient old buck that um eluded us yet again i mean by the skin of his little chinny chin chin um the hair of his chinny chin chin eluded me with the rifle and then eluded me with my bow and then was smack dab on one of my food plots all the way through the end of February, beginning of March and just kept, he just held onto his rack. He just would never drop it. I was, you know, he's ancient. He's got to be at least eight and a half years old. I, I truly believe he's at least eight and a half years old right now or last year. Well, he just disappeared like he normally does. He's just a recluse. He does not like to be around other deer. He, I mean, he just, you never, well, I can't say that. During the rut, um, he was. Uh, in During rifle season, he was hanging out with uh, other deer. But then after that, it's just like, nope, I'm out. 
And all summer, he's usually by himself. Maybe hanging out with one other buck or so, but... <clears throat> so he just vanished, and I was just like, man... And, and the coyotes are just still going nuts over there. So I'm looking at this, and I'm like, man, he, we may never see him again. I don't know, but I, I have a, a very mature whitetail standing this this is this is not the only picture from last night but there's several pictures now of a very very mature whitetail an old whitetail that's got his rack going and his rack is head and shoulders above anybody else at this point and man does his face look familiar I'm going to hold off and I mean summer pictures can be deceiving so I'm going to hold off for a little bit but the old man might still be alive and he might be back and that oh, can you imagine can you imagine if he's if he's alive if he made it if he's back oh my goodness I mean you want to talk about a uh, people talk about a target buck if he's still alive and he's back on the landscape, he's going to be he's not, he's not a he's not a target buck. He's going to be obsession buck. He is going to be brother. I'm I'm just going to apologize to you right now. Plans are going to be laid. They're Oh, you want to talk about a targeted animal? There's going to be, with with all the respect and admiration and awe and, uh, yeah, respect that you can that that he that he's earned. There's going to be a significant, <laughs> a significant. I thought last year we had a significant effort. You think there's not going to be a significant effort this year to see if we can't finally get it? Oh man. I mean, listen, but. And I said this last last year too. If he if he eludes everyone and just dies of old age someday, he will have earned it. And my hat's off to him. But if he's gonna play the game, if he's out there on that chessboard and he's he's out there to 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 play the game with. Oh man. I, I can't so I I don't know I I've seen now a couple days this it's been several days now where this deer has shown up and he's shown up in the same spots exactly where he should be and his face looks very similar very very familiar oh fingers crossed he might absolutely I mean who knows I mean given his age whether he's gonna amount to anything I I don't know um and the sad part is is you know, last, uh, last year that property uh, had soybean up there, so um, it was nice because there was just high, high, high protein food all over the place that he could get a hold of. <clears throat> this year it's going to go into corn, so there's not a lot of food on the landscape. And the and the food plots that I did now, I've got some really good food up there for him, but not as much as I would like, simply because the drought just kicked the 
nuts out from underneath uh, a lot of what was planted up there. So I've got a, I've, I just sprayed a whole bunch of stuff and I need to come in and, and drill in some new stuff and, and have some new food on the table. Cause it just, it just didn't work, but, um, just cause of the weather, but anyway, that's exciting that, I mean that I woke up this morning and saw that picture come through and I, and, and I got a, I'm a solid one way. It's like right there in front of the camera, like bing high. Remember me? Yes, I do. So fingers crossed it's him. Fingers crossed it's him. Fingers crossed it's him. That'd be so sweet. But the big the the thing that I wanted to uh, this this just hit me and I, I thought it would be funny to or fun to go down this little thought exercise and it actually does. Some of it does actually um, have some cross pollination with that first question on on organizations and, and what organizations I follow and, and et cetera et cetera et cetera. Well, one of the other organizations that I follow uh, from a wildlife standpoint is the Wildlife Society, a member of the Wildlife Society. Wildlife Society is a professional organization for wildlife biologists and managers, um, not unlike you know forestry societies or or engineering societies or surveyors. You know, just you know any professional organization uh, that has a professional qualification thing attached to it for you know. I, what do you want to call it? Standards of, of quality and standards of performance, and and just just so you know that who you're dealing with is actually someone that that knows what the hell they're doing with dealing with. So that um, and and a place for everybody to to share ideas and share information and and just kind of help the profession move in a positive direction on education and, and staying up to date with what's going on in the world. So Wildlife Society is that organization for wildlife biologists and managers now. Full disclosure, um, I used to be a certified wildlife biologist. So a lot of professional organizations will provide certifications for their for their members membership, um, and the Wildlife Society does that as a professional certification. You have to have certain uh, education requirements. You have to have certain job requirements, uh, continuing education requirements. There's a, there's a litany of things that you were supposed to. You're, and I say supposed to. I'll get to that in a second, but. There's a bunch of requirements that are are that you have to go through, hoops that you got to go through, and years of performance that you have to demonstrate before you can be quote unquote considered a certified wildlife biologist. Now we did that. I, I both Kelly and I pursued getting our certification when we were very active in row ecological services because it it was a way to stand ourselves apart from others so people knew who we were and, and kind of where we stood and, and what our qualifications were um, but as oftentimes in the wildlife world um, things can get very left-leaning left you know left ideology if you will uh, very environmentalist, and quite honestly, we they started getting into some of the more progressive ideology where the ends justify the means. So Kelly and I've shared this before. Kelly actually sat on the certification board for a while. She, you know, again, because you can fill, you can have all the education requirements, you can have all the job requirements, you can have all the educate, you know, all the continuing ed and work experience and blah 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 that you know that the that the application for the certification is looking for. However, you still need to go most of the time for these, you know, professional certifications, you still need to go before a board and, or a a review board. And and somebody looks at your credentials and says, yay or nay. Well, Kelly was on that board and that, that gave the yays or nays on who gets certified and who doesn't. Well, 
it used to be based off of the strict criterion set forth through the organization that is in black and white. You need X, Y, Z. You need A, B, C. You need one, two, three, four, five, six. You need these things. And, and basically, they're check boxes. Check, 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 check yourself. Just check right on down through. And then once you've met those minimums, then it goes before the board. And then they look at all sorts of the other stuff, the ethics, the the professional, you know, what all the background stuff on you. Well, during her stint on the board, it seemed like some of those board members uh, the panel members didn't they 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 were more interested in the politic the the politics and the political benefits and potentials of certification rather than the uh, bedrock of of the founding principles of the certification and so they were bending trying to bend rules and give ex, ex you know exceptions people that clearly did not meet the standard but politically would be advantageous if the wildlife society had them on as a as a certified wildlife biologist because then it would speak volumes because this person is so great and glorious in this case okay well they're not even they're not even wildlife biologists they're not they don't even have basic or or maybe they they were in an ecologist somewhere and maybe they did some really good work but they don't have all the other education and all the other experience that's necessary to be considered a CWB not CWD, CWB, Certified Wildlife Biologist. So Kelly would, you know, these people would be like, yes, let's give them certification. And Kelly would be like, what the hell are you talking about? They didn't even meet the, the requirements. Meanwhile, over here, there's somebody that met the requirements. But you know what? Uh, that 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 job, well, was it really a job or was it an internship? And really, should it have been classified there? Or, you know, really was it as, as, as important? Well, we're not going to give them certification. Okay, hold on a minute. They, they technically checked all the boxes. They did what they were supposed to do. They have no problems. They're entry level. They're coming into the, the profession. You, you're going to reject someone that has all the qualifications simply and then you're but you're going to accept someone who doesn't meet any of the of most of the qualifications simply because it's politically expe, you know, expedient. New. No. No, and so on again. The principle of the damn thing. Um, she she did she served out her time, and it was like, all right, we're done, we're out, off, bye bye, and we just let our membership lapse because it just it was going in a politically ideological uh, leftist leaning ideology uh, direction further than where we were willing to go. But over time, you know, things change, obviously. And the other thing is, is it is still the best place for wildlife biologists and managers to get a comprehensive overview of what the hell's going on in the, in the industry, in the profession. They have s several different publications um, where biologists, managers, uh, resource professionals will, you know, if you're researching, if you're academics, if whatever, you can publish your research, peer-reviewed. It should, I hope, is still rigorously peer-reviewed, but it's peer-reviewed. So, you know, there's a, a benchmark on not every Joe Schwinging, you know, Joe Schmedley is just throwing an article in there in a professional publication. So the Journal of Wildlife Management is one of the most prestigious journals in the world of wildlife biology, ecology, management, research, etc., and so, and that's one that is published through the Wildlife Society and as well as the Wildlife Society Bulletin. The 
the Journal of Wildlife Management oftentimes is going to be, it's kind of geared more towards the researchers, the biologists, the academics, where it's heavy on statistics, high-level statistics, big studies, big models, that type of stuff. Um, almost, it's not exclusively, but very, very heavy leaning in the just the research. We are going to investigate this idea type of deal on this critter. Then the Wildlife Society Bulletin used to be, and oftentimes is, is it just seems as it's just better geared towards managers. So where we're going to take information that the biologists have learned, that the academics have learned, and, and all these other research papers that have been published in the Journal of Wildlife Management and um, Journal of Mammalogy and Nature and all these other things where, you know, wherever, you know, things have been published. And then we're going to take it and we're actually going to put it on the ground and we're going to test some ideas on how we can move the needle on management or uh, a management technique, uh, whatever. So you got the Wildlife Society, uh, yeah, Wildlife Society Bulletin, and then you got the, the um, hold on, let me, I just, yeah. Sorry, I was just trying to find if they, nah, it doesn't matter. So Wildlife Society Bulletin, the Journal of Wildlife Management. Now, the other thing that they have produced is uh, just a, a, a bi-monthly magazine called The Wildlife Professional, which is just a synthesis of what's kind of going on around the world in the United States or whatever with regard to wildlife conservation, biology, management, ecology, that type of that type of thing. So it's it's just it's just little short articles that highlight some things that have been going on. Some maybe some there are some articles that have just been published in Journal of Wildlife Management, and they, they just touch on it really briefly here, or the Wildlife Society Bulletin or whatever, they just touch on it. Or maybe it's from another publication, but it was interesting, and, and wildlife professionals would be interested in, in these ideas. So I get that, all right? So I, I, I went ahead and got my membership again so I could stay abreast of what is going on in the world, and I can have access to those journals and continue to, you know, when I need to look up something or research something or, or get my head wrapped around something, that's a great place where I can go because their online um, resources are pretty nice because through your membership, you can go in and through the what they call the JSTOR, uh, it'll link to pretty much every publication that you want your heart's content. You can go and search it and query it and all that type of stuff and you get that stuff back and you can read all this. So it's awesome. It's awesome. So, yes, do, do I do I still have fundamental issues with the political leanings of the organization? Eh, yeah, I do. Um, but do they provide a tangible benefit for me from a research and uh, professional standpoint? The, the honest answer is still is yes. So it is what it is. But I would I just got the May. So here I am. I, I've got it in front of me. May June two thousand twenty two edition. Um. And I just started flipping through. And it I just had to start. I just had to laugh. I just had to laugh. Because I'm going through this thing and I and, and instantly, instantly, I am struck with the amount of overlap of topics that we've talked about on this podcast, topics you've heard other people talk about, action items that you've heard, you know, how, what, you know, what, Organization, whatever organization you want to pick about, you know, these action items and, and rally around these causes, blah, 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 click here and do this and click, you know, 
oppose such and such and, and stand up for this and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then, and then, or, or on social media, you, you know, the, the turkey guys or the deer guys, you know, you're, you're reading, you know, their personal pages and they're sharing information with you and, and you hear people talking about, and, and one that comes up all the time is this predator management. I'm, I'm probably going to keep hitting it because a lot of you keep sending me stuff to look at and, and comment on regarding, you know, predator management. And I don't think there is, it, it boggles the mind. I don't know if there's a, it's like in the professional world, it's like broadheads. It's like arguing broadheads for, for archery. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's like one of the most contentious ideas on, on the landscape where you're either all in on it or you are all, you're, you're like almost just whole cloth against it. All right. And you got some people who are talking about habitat, 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 you know, oh, predator, predator management doesn't work. And it's all, it's all, it's all habitat. It's all, you know, it's all habitat. You, you got to manage your habitat. Okay. Well, let me, let me take a, let me take a brief segue real quick. Well, no, 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 no. I'm going to, no, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that segue because it's going to, going to come up here. So one of the ones, um, So, sorry, I'm just, I'm just looking through here. So let me, let me just start. Let me just start reading some of these. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll skip the f- fishers. I'll, I'll skip, I'll skip the fishers one for right now. Um, the one that, that I just sat there. Okay. On again, we're, if we, if we sit there, we say it's the principle of the damn thing. Okay, it, can we just can we have honest can we have an honest conversation? I think this is where this thread of this 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 podcast is going to go. Can we just can we can we have integrity? Can we have um, credibility in our conversations by being honest and and giving credit where credit is due and not trying to? I don't. Let me just dive in. Let me just dive. So this 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 one hit me. Just flat out hit me. Short article. New York hunters let young bucks go. Is the title. Let me read it. So antler point restrictions are often sought by hunters hoping to improve their experiences. By banning the harvest of young white-tailed deer with smaller antlers, animals are left to grow older and, more likely, grow larger antlers. Many hunters prefer larger antlers, but some bristle at the regulations. Quote, antler point restrictions are a contentious and controversial topic among among hunters, said TWS, the Wildlife Society. The TWS member, Jeremy Hurst, big game unit leader for New York Department of Environmental Conservation, so New York DEC. Hurst dove into the controversy. In a study published in the Wildlife Society Bulletin, his team looked into what effects the state's antler point restrictions had on the two groups of wildlife management units where they were implemented, one in 2005 and the other in 2012. The restrictions affected buck harvest as expected, they found. In in the 2005 area, the proportion of yearlings in the buck harvest fell from 51% to 13% over five years. So again, they they basically, the the state implemented an antler point restriction to where you just couldn't go out and shoot a little two-by-two buck, okay? So 
The proportion, okay, so in 2005 area, the proportion of yearlings in the buck harvest fell from 51% of the harvest to 13% over five years. The 2012 area saw a similar drop from 58% to 19%. Antlerless deer harvest used to manage populations were unaffected. And here's where it just got interesting for me. But something unexpected did happen. Adjacent, unrestricted management units also saw declines in harvested yearling bucks from 62% to 45% during the study and as low as 25% more recently. Hunter's attitudes are changing, Hearst said, and a let young bucks go state campaign may be accomplishing similar goals without regulations. Let me just, the last bit. After studying hunter values and management impacts, New York decided in 2016 not to expand antler point restrictions to other areas. I think the outcomes of this paper reinforce that decision, Hearst said. What, what's the state slogan? Let young bucks go? And but and and the quote the but something unexpected did happen. Adjacent unrestricted management units also saw declines between 2005 and what 2012 into 2016. It kept going down. What was going on at that time? Anybody that pays attention in the Whitetail Woods, I already mentioned the organization. Are we seriously not going to have a conversation in this little, I, I need to pull up the paper, obviously, and, and look at the actual paper. Are we really not going to mention the Quality Deer Management Association and like their efforts at the, during these exact periods of time, the massive campaign that QDMA did and their tagline of let them go so they can grow? I mean, that's the Quality Deer Management Association tagline right there. You can buy signs to this day where it's got a whitetail and it says, let them go so they can grow. You can put it up on your, your property just to kind of help pe keep people, you know, saying, hey, let, let's, let's let these young bucks go so they can grow and we can get a, a more diverse age structure on the landscape, more older bucks on the landscape. So we, not only can we have, you know, bigger antlers and, and better trophy potential of our, our bucks, but we're doing better things from a reproductive standpoint and a, and a behavioral dynamic standpoint on the landscape by having a little bit healthier of a diversity of age structure on the landscape. That was Quality Deer Management Association's major push. I think they they were absolutely one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer in that philosophy across the the, the southeast and then across the rest of the uh, eastern United States, wherever whitetails are found. But something unexpected did happen. Adjacent unrestricted management units also. Something unexpected. Yeah, because there was an organization out there just absolutely busting their butts, doing incredible, incredible work, getting information out, educating people. The Quality Deer Management Association had a publication called Quality Whitetails. They, I mean, it's, the Quality Whitetails still exists. Again, it's it's now merged with the National Deer Alliance, so that's why it's now the National Deer Association. But regardless, are, seriously, we're not going to give any credit. We're, we're not going to meant. How do you not? How do you? How do you not? Just from a credibility standpoint, a respect standpoint, 
give kudos where kudos are. I don't know. I just, I sat there and I'm like, of course you saw a whole scale reduction in change in attitudes because there was an organization out there every single month or well, each quarter they were sending out their magazine. They were all over the place, pounding the drum. Sportsmen were pounding the drum, changing attitudes on how they hunt, what they value, what the, what, what the metric was. Of course, those things happened. So the argument then becomes, you know, it, do you force things, do you force change by regulation? Is it, e- is it easier and more effective to force behavioral change through regulation? Or is it easier, maybe better, I don't know if better is the right word, or or can you change uh, behavior through example and changing attitudes and educating people? That's, that's, that's a raging controversy today with just anywhere in the political spectrum. But so, yeah, there was people in New York that did not want antler point restrictions. But during the same period of time, people across the United States started to value quality deer management principles more. And so you had a massive shift in the value set of hunters in the regardless of whether there was antler point restrictions or not. So anyway, I just saw that and and their tagline, "Let young bucks go." Just why? Why do you, why 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 do you why do you have to why why do you have to come up with your own little slogan? Why don't you say, "New York State is going to support the Quality Deer Management Association's efforts and education campaign of let them go so they can grow," and just give the organization some kudos, dovetail it, you know, you as a state agency. I don't know. Ugh. I just saw that and I was like, seriously, seriously. Anyway, but this is this is where it got fun. I mean, like it's like every every page. Like I turn the page and here's another one that I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. All right, get this one. This is this one. This one I loved. All right, let me remove. Let, let me let me read this one for you. Okay, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question. Barred owl removal brought back spotted owls. Barred owl removal brought back spotted owls. All right, what's this? By removing invasive barred owls from the Sierra Nevada, researchers brought back more than half the California spotted owls that the invasive owls displaced. Barred owls, excuse me, presented one of the main threats to the California spotted owl. In an effort to keep the native bird from being listed as federally endangered, researchers wanted to see if they could improve spotted owl numbers by removing barred owls, which compete for resources and may create broader ecosystem disturbances. Quote, we wanted to remove the majority of barred owls in the Sierra Nevada, and our massive public-private partnership ensured that we maximize the number of barred owl territories that were accessible, said Daniel Hofstetter, lead author of a study published in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. A master's student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at the time, Hofstetter and his colleagues tapped into passive acoustic data that were monitoring for bird species in the, um, I, I, apologize if I, I apologize if I butcher these names, the Lassen, Lassen, or Lassen and Plumas National Forests. When the monitors revealed barred owls, a species native to the eastern portion of the country, the team set out to remove them. Barred owls initially occupied 19% of the study area. That plunged to 3% after 76 owls were removed. 
without their competitors, spotted owls came back. Within a year, they recolonized 56% of their former territories. Quote, we're really hopeful, at least in the Sierra Nevada, Hofstetter said. We caught it early enough that there were still California spotted owls left to return. End of article. <coughs> Did we just read something about predator management? Like a competing predator? Did, did we just... Did, I thought it was about habitat, habitat, habitat. Is it not about habitat? Is it not about habitat? What, what, are, we, what are we talking about? Isn't it habitat? So here we have an owl that is competing with another owl. One owl that isn't supposed to be there naturally, or at least, I, I'm not going to say naturally, because it, it obviously dispersed there and found itself there, and it set up home there, and it was successful there. So that's just natural progression of... Uh, species movement across the landscape, right? Unless we're talking, and I don't know, I'd like to read the paper, but um, unless we're talking about someone illegally moved barred owls and, and put them over in the Sierra Nevadas, okay? But regardless, here we are talking about managing one species of predator to benefit another species, right? It's okay, apparently. And they got a permit because they would have had to gotten a permit from... Anyway, the, the logistics of going out and being able to remove owls off the landscape is, is massive because it's just never heard of. And what did I talk about not too long ago? We never hear people talk about, look at great horned owls. Great horned owls have moved across the United States and they have they have filled in almost every available niche space, uh, at least in the lower 48, to the point where they are absolutely causing negative effects on long-eared owl populations, short-eared owl populations, barn owls, screech owls. I mean, great horned owls are a dominant force on the landscape and they were not endemic to many areas throughout the West and maybe even Midwest. I don't know. I don't know about that, but there's a lot of places where great horned owls didn't used to be, and now they are, and the other animals that are out there are suffering. Why do we never ever hear people talking about doing great horned owls? I, I would love to see a study where we went in and whacked the piss out of great horned owls to see if long-eared owls came back, to see if short-eared owl came back, to see if our barn owls you know, took a better stance if our screech owls did did better. And quite honestly, can we have a conversation if we're going to remove barred owls to protect another species of owl, why can't we have the conversation of removing great horned owls in places where we know we've got turkey predation by owls? I don't know. Wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? Do you think we'll ever, as sportsmen, ever get get to have that conversation? Hell no. Killing owls to save turkeys or whatever? No. Hell no. Hell no. We never. No. I doubt. I. I. I will. I will rejoice when I see the day of that conversation happen. But here we are. We're talking about killing owls to save to to allow another species of owl to 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 flourish hold on i'm not done flip the page okay 
Uh, oh, let me save. Let me save that one. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll come to it. Maybe I'll come back to it. We'll see. All right. So I flip to page twelve. All right. So here we go. Here's another one. This this one's going to have some cross pollination to it. No, you know what? I'm going to change. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me let me let me skip it. Let me skip it. Let me let me flip. Let me flip my own script here. Let me flip my own script and jump to this. Okay, keeping on a um, on a similar thread, right? Because aren't we told that? Um, again, it's habitat, 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 habitat. Here we are. We just you know researchers, academics, and government officials went in and whacked the piss out of barred owls to save another species of barred owl so or, or another species of owl another non-game species we're going to go whack the piss out of we're going to do predator management in order to assist another species okay but sportsmen when we talk about when when sportsmen talk about predator management no no that's not effective we need to focus on habitat right Spotting the problems for Great Lakes turtles. Wildlife services and partners reduce predation on vulnerable reptiles. What? Wildlife services, that's a government agency that whacks the piss out of animals. They do other things, but they are well known for their their basic wildlife management, lethal removal or at least removal exclusion of critters, oftentimes, most of the time, predators. And it is a federal I mean, it's a it's a it's a branch of the federal government, or not a branch. It's it's an it's a um, department under USDA. Well, USDA, um, yeah. That that their mission is to go out there and take care of nuisance nuisance critters. Okay, so here we go. Let me just let me read some of this real quick for you. So we're talking about Great Lakes turtles, and and the Blandings turtle is one that's going to come up. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pull a Jen Sackey. I'm going to circle back to another article in here about Blandings turtles. Okay, so if you search through Chicago's wetlands, surrounding by surrounded by city life, you may be lucky enough to spot a Blandings turtle sporting a bright yellow chin and great smile. If you choose. If you closely peer into Ohio's shallow bogs and fens, you may come across an aptly named spotted turtle, spotted turtle wearing a shell dotted with spots resembling stars in the night sky. While it's easy to see their differences, these two species of semi-aquatic turtles, found in different parts of the Great Lakes region, share something in common. They both require special conservation attention. That's because some of the areas where they're found are experiencing landscape modifications and development directly or indirectly precipitating in, or precipitating a decline from a once thriving population. Blandings turtles and spotted turtles aren't the only freshwater turtles experiencing decreases in both population and distribution over the last few decades. Habitat loss, population isolation, increased predation, road mortality, and illegal poaching have contributed to the decline of other species like American wood turtles in Connecticut. Six of Eight Great Lakes states list the Blandings turtle as endangered, threatened, or a species of concern. 
Indiana and Illinois list the spotted turtle as endangered, while Ohio and Michigan both categorize them as threatened, and New York designates them as a species of special concern. In 2023, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, okay, in 2023, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will consider both species for listing under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Meanwhile, in the Midwest, scientists are focusing on one threat in particular, predation prompted by urbanization in an effort to protect the imperiled species. Predator problems. Mesopredators, like raccoons, okay, so those, if you hear people say a mesopredator or a mesopredator, depends on how you want to pronounce it, M-E-S-O predator, meso or meso, you have predators like your bears and your wolves and your coyotes and foxes and bobcats, oh my. And then you've got your small little predators like the weasels and shrews and that type of stuff. But in between there, you have your raccoons and your opossums and your skunks. Okay, those are usually classified as mesopredators. They they are predators. They will prey on things, but they will also scavenge on things. And um, so anyway, when you hear people talk about mesopredators or mesopredators, most of the time you're talking about skunks, opossums, and raccoons. Raccoons especially. All right. So mesopredators like raccoons threaten blandings and spotted turtles in the Midwest, since turtle populations there are largely confined to certain areas providing predators easy access. <coughs> Turkeys in the Western Plains. What? Huh? What? Since turtle populations there are largely confined to certain areas, providing predators easy access. Raccoons thrive and often have unnaturally high population numbers in suburban and urban areas due to their ability to efficiently use human subsidies such as garbage, inadvertent shelter, elimination of top predators, and deliberate food supplements. What have I talked about out here with raccoons with corn? And are we if we're talking about subsidizing coon, raccoons in the urban environment because of food and cover, etc. It's the same thing about we're dealing with out here on the landscape, subsidizing raccoons with corn everywhere on the landscape. And we have climate changes to where our our winters are warmer to where they can be out and active constantly. Anyway, let's just continue with Blanding's turtle. Let's, let's, Let's not worry about turkeys right now. The presence of too many nest predators can be unsustainable for turkey pup. Sorry. <laughs> that, was, that was not intentional. The, pre- the presence of too many nest predators can be unsta- unsustainable for turtle populations that are already stressed from habitat loss, fragmentation, and population isolation. The, the parallels to Western Plains turkeys is, is incredible here, but let's just keep going on. For threatened or rare species, particularly species like turtles that are long-lived with delayed sexual maturity and small clutch sizes, clutch sizes even low levels of predation can severely negatively affect population sustainability. The Midwest Partners for Amphibian and Reptile Conservation M-W-P-A-R-C I'm just, it's easier to just spell it out to say it than try to spell that thing out 
a partnership including federal and state agencies, conservation groups, museums, and others, agree that raccoons are the main problem for these are a main problem for these turtles. In their position statement, they specifically addressed raccoon threats to turtle conservation and recommend managing raccoons in localized areas that have declining turkey populations. So we have a partnership that is made up of federal agencies, state agencies. These are government people, government, not you, not, not you, not a sportsman. A go- government agencies, conservation groups, and museums, and others agree that rac- raccoons are the, a main problem for these turtles, and they made a position statement that said raccoons threaten turtle conservation and recommend managing raccoons in localized areas that have declining turtle populations. But, now, we'll get into this a little bit, but getting rid of predators doesn't completely solve the problem. Strategies for conserving turtle populations generally include increasing recruitment in the population to compensate for adult losses and reduce adult mortality to compensate for low recruitment. There's going to be another article I'm going to touch on here in a minute. Where biologists in Illinois and Ohio have monitored these two turtles, populations have consisted of older individuals with little to no recruitment of young turtles. Again, I'm going to, go, I'm going to circle back to another article in this uh, publication that talks about some of what they're doing with that. Beginning in 2011, Wildlife Services biologists partnered with the natural resource managers in Illinois and Ohio to start tackling some of the key issues, particularly predation, affecting these two turtles in their respective states. Following the North American model of wildlife conservation, government agencies, including the wildlife, including wildlife services, have the responsibility to have the responsibility to manage and sustain wildlife populations for future generations to enjoy and appreciate. To do this, one of the focuses of the Wildlife Services Program is to protect threatened and endangered wildlife and plants. Excuse me, threatened and endangered wildlife and plants from impacts of disease, invasive species, and predators. Of course, to complete these efforts, Wildlife Services needs funding. Some of that comes from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, the GLRI, was launched in 2010 as a non-regulatory program to accelerate efforts to protect and restore the largest system of fresh surface water in the world and to provide additional resources to make progress towards those goals. An integrated approach, blah, 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 blah. But they pinpointed historical ranges after species was added, blah, blah, blah. They led to blah, 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 blah. They radio marked turtles, blah, blah, blah. They also work to reduce the localized population of predators that consume adult turtles, hatchlings, and eggs by conducting targeted mesopredator removal. And they monitor the success of known Blanding's turtles' nests. Now, they keep going on. Um, LCD staff, and this is what, it, you know, one of the projects was they, to increase juvenile survival, they collected eggs and hatched those eggs and gave the little hatchlings a head start and then turned them, turned those young turtles loose once they got to a certain size. That is eerily familiar to me in what I talked about in a previous podcast. And I'm, again, that's what I'm going to circle back to here in a second. But anyway, they go on talking about the predator removal that they did and, you know, this integrated approach where there's a lot of habitat work that 
being done on the landscape, but the habitat is finite. The habitat has limitations. So the removal, the targeted removal of predators for this species actually absolutely move the needle. And they've got the statistics. They show the graph. They show the chart. Move the needle on allowing not only more turtles to survive, but more turtle nests to hatch successfully and young turtles to move around on the landscape and become part of the adult population over time. Yeah, so there you go. So again, this is wildlife services, okay? This is what they do, okay? So obviously they're going to be biased and I, I know that. But here we are, we're talking about state agencies, federal governments, governments, federal government and state agencies and other conservation groups all getting behind predator removal as a viable option for the conservation and in this case preservation of a species on the landscape. And the last, you know, the results suggest mesopredator management efforts may be effective in increasing nest survivorship and recruitment. This site is small, though, about 40 acres, and turtle nesting is concentrated. Nest predator removal efforts may be more challenging to implement at a larger or more urban or suburban sites. Now, okay, that's that's a legitimate statement. Yes, we can have a conversation on predator management at scale. We can have a discussion uh, at a debate, if you will, on whether or not... Now, wildlife, wildlife services, this is... It's what they do. This is their job. So these people are going out every day, trapping and removing raccoons for the sole purpose of trapping and removing raccoons. They get paid to do this. This is their daily job. It's not their hobby. It's not something that's fun that you do with your kids on the weekend and you dabble at. No, they take it seriously and this is what they do. So there is a difference in effort that's put on the landscape. And there is a difference in, in the scale of which they're, they're tackling. They're, they're going into areas and they're saturating certain particular areas. But there's enough research out there that shows that predator management in a targeted fashion at a strategic time absolutely can move the needle on especially ground-based nests. Here we're talking about turtles. We we can't have that conversation for turkeys. It's 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 not about turkeys. It's it's about habitat, 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 right? Well, here's the problem. And and this is this very well may end up being the thing with Blanding's turtles and, and the spotted turtles. They talk about the habitat that they have available to them. If you think about a uh let's just say a horizontal line and you know they talk about the, the limited habitat that these turtles have, and then the subsidizing of the raccoon population. I could not have said, I, I could not have asked for other researchers, government people, and other researchers to, to make my case for me. And this is beautiful. So, okay, so your habitat for your turtles is finite. You, you, have, a, you have a limited number of it. And we can argue whether it's we're, they're rapidly decreasing or increasing, whatever. But let's just say the turtle habitat is stay is 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 staying the same. It's a it's a straight horizontal line. If you look at a at a graph, y-axis, x-axis, and you put quantity of uh, habitat on one axis, you know, on one axis, and then um, over time on the x-axis, 
if it's just a flat line, it, the habitat, the amount of habitat stays the same. And let's say the, the amount of quality habitat stays the same or the habitat quality stays the same. If your area ha- was able to maintain a, a population, a high level of population within the framework of that particular habitat, and then there starts to become this subsidization of the predators in the area. And predators are abnormally waylaying the ever-living piss out of whatever species of, of concern you have. Is it a habitat issue? Or is it a predator issue? The habitat hasn't changed. Again, in this situation, I'm talking about habitat that hasn't changed. The habitat is the same, but now we've subsidized, in this case, an urban environment, urban situations where, you know, the turtles are being able to use human garbage, cat food, dog food being left out at night, uh, trash. They're staying in, you know, abandoned, you know, they're probably doing the exact same thing in culverts, in abandoned buildings, you know, just you name it where they're staying. They're, they're, they're able to adapt to a wide variety of landscapes and given that these past several years we've had some mild winters in many places man raccoon populations with that much food with easy conditions to live in uh from a weather standpoint and many places from which to have a secure place to breed and or give birth and and raise little ones it doesn't matter what's quite honestly you can have the same level of habitat and the same habitat quality but if all of a sudden you have four or five times the amount of predators on the landscape, because in our case, in my case that I'm talking about with the turkeys, because we've got so much corn on the landscape everywhere where there's high energy, high fat, high energy food on the landscape for raccoons to forage on constantly. And every female is giving birth to six, you know, kits and, you know, and, and they're all surviving to adulthood. If you quadruple your nest predators. How in the hell are your turkeys that used to do well on this landscape? How in the hell are they going to be able to get a leg up? Should, if we're going to talk about the successes, and, and there's so many more examples of targeted predation, predator removal, high intensity, short duration, targeted predator removal and its success, whether we're talking about Blanding's turtles, whether we're talking spotted turtles, whether we're talking turkeys, whether we're talking deer, whether we're talking other, endi- you'll hear it all the time. When we're talking about endangered species management, you will hear t- people talk about predator removal all the time. It's like right there at the top of the list. Why is it that government officials, university academics, and others researchers are okay with predator removal being a viable option on the table for what seems to be most of the time non-game species conservation. But when sportsmen want to have a conversation, an honest, a, a, a reasonable conversation about predator management to help conserve and preserve certain populations or at least a minimum population of game species, it's a non-starter. 
we're not allowed to have that conversation because it doesn't work. Predator management doesn't work. Like you, you can't do that. No, it just, it's all about habitat. It's habitat, 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 habitat. Apparently not. If it's, if it's okay for, I don't know. It just drives me. It just, can, can we, it's again, it's the principle of the damn thing. Can we just have an honest conversation that yes, in this case, you're dealing with a, a agency that is focused on killing critters. So the intensity level that they are going to put on the landscape is probably going to be different than maybe what sportsmen can do. The scale of what these guys are doing is small. It's targeted. It's a, it's a finite area. Whereas maybe what we want to do is from a sportsman is in a broader area. Okay, so that increases challenges. I understand that. But can we not at least have the conversation of if we were... Number one, can we not have the conversation that okay, it is a viable, it is a viable management technique. It is used by the federal government, by state agencies, oftentimes for endangered species, you know, you know, threatened or endangered species and or non-game species conservation. It ought to be on the table for game species management. And conservation. But we ought to be able to have an, a legitimate conversation about, yes, it is a viable one if these things can be achieved. If these things can be done by sportsmen, by the average public, then we will go that route. Let's try those route. Let's let's put those 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 management things on the table. Let's 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 let them be let, if we sit there and we say that we want to preserve trapping and trapping is a viable management tool that managers need to be able to have, then shouldn't we be advocating for some of it? Now, again, there's going to be... Sorry. This this ties directly, and you guys know this. It's, sorry. Ties directly with what's going on in South Dakota. And I mentioned that, and I talked about that in a previous podcast about South Dakota wanting to put that or putting that nest predator trapping season in place and how they did it might have been not the way the administrative process should have worked. I, I fully understand that. It seemed like it was ramrodded from the top down and, and you know, there were some people, agency prof- you know, personnel and biologists and conservation groups that were bent out of shape about that. Hey, fine, I understand that. But it was always a... a discussion of no 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 this is this is not going to work this is ineffective it's a waste of time we can't you know it's not moving the needle blah 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 no if it's good if it's good for the goose it better damn well be good for the gander and if there's differences and limitations those are the things that we need to focus on not whether or not the technique is is viable or not obviously the technique is viable obviously professional researchers do it and and are a lot you know lauded by it. Uh, state and federal agencies do it, and they're applauded for their conservation efforts and and ooh ah great things that they've done with it. Why can't we have that conversation and how we put things on the landscape in a in a better targeted fashion? All right. And I talked about with what we've got out here and some of these these situations or our habitat with turkeys or anything else that you want to talk about, pheasants, quail, deer to a certain in some extent. Can we do massive, broad-scale, sweeping, statewide, you know, campaign that's going to absolutely suppress? I probably not. But 
can we identify areas that actually have that we could go in and target uh, some you know strategic areas and set up little co-ops or cooperatives with the area biologists and area game wardens and area families and that type of stuff to where we say, okay, these areas could benefit from a targeted predator removal. Let's try it. Let's do a pilot study. Let's let's see how we can engage the public in a creative manner, in a in a scientifically statistical rigorous manner and actually educate the public, work with sportsmen on being a part of a successful effort. But no, we 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 don't have we it seems like we we can't have that conversation. It just gets frustrated. I understand why so many people get frustrated. Now again, there's limitations, okay? You you can't we now as sportsmen, we can't say, oh yeah, well, well predator removal, us being able, you know, sportsmen being able to go out and do predator removal, that's that's gonna that's gonna solve everything. No, it probably won't solve everything. It's just a tool that could be put on the landscape and, and a, a tool that you that can be used. And here's an example um of where I think there was some brief success there. Well, let me just, let me, let me just segue from the predator removal efforts for that Blanding's tur- the, the turtle conservation. Let's, let's go over here to non-native mountain goats removed from Grand Tetons. Okay. Read this article. The National Park Service has removed most non-native mountain goats from Grand Teton National Park in an effort to help native bighorn sheep there. Quote, we think we now have removed the vast majority of non-native mountain goats, said Jeremy Barnum the chief of staff at Grand Teton National Park. Quote, we feel very confident that we significantly reduce the threat of non-native mountain goats against bighorn sheep. Following a 2019 mountain goat management plan, park contractors began removing mountain goats in in 2020 through aerial shooting operations. Now, some of you will remember that issue became a very big controversy in the fact that the, the Park Service was like, well, we're just going to go up there and waylay the piss out of them. We're going to shoot them and leave them lay. A lot of sportsmen chimed in and were like, what the hell are you talking about? Why don't you let us go in there and hunt them and actually do something and utilize it? Utilize that that trophy. Utilize that meat. We'll pay you for a tag. So you'll, So rather than you spending money, we will pay you to be able to go in there and you know, reduce the populations. There was a big discussion between whether aerial gunning was was necessary. Was it ethical? Was it the right thing to do? Was sports were sportsmen going to be able to move the needle? Was that what the Park Service wanted to do? Some people were anti-hunting. Blah blah blah. So it was just this this fiasco. Okay, but in the fall of 2020 and 20, 2021, qualified volunteers began to take on removal efforts. While they were initially successful, Barnum said, the effort became riskier and less efficient over time as the population was reduced and moved into hard-to-reach areas. Okay, so hold on a minute. What did he just say? So the, the Park Service started to do aerial gunning. Everybody freaked out. Then they agreed that they were going to allow some people to go in and, and volunteer and be a part of that whole situation. Well, it said, what did he say? while they were initially successful. How about we take the while out and how about we say they were initially successful. Having having people go in there and do it on their own was successful. However, as, and this makes absolute sense, 
as the population was reduced, it became harder to find the animals. And then those animals were moving. They just from a, a safety standpoint, they started moving themselves into harder to reach places and places where you could not recover them. And okay. So you still have a remnant population of goats that are out there that are now inaccessible to those quote unquote hunters that are out there participating in this removal effort. So now they go in there and they did the aerial gunning. That to me, if if I was if I if 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 I could be the manager for the day, that's how you run it. Here we have a situation where we, we we need to remove animals. In some cases, we need to remove animals because they're causing a conservation uh, problem for another species. Maybe it's Blanding's turtles' nests. Maybe it's turkey nests. Whatever. Or maybe we've got mountain goats that are out competing bighorn sheep on some of these habitats. Why not use hunters first? Trapping, trappers first. But rather than just say, okay, we're just going to throw the door open and just go up there and fart around and, and flail around and see what you can do. How about, how about you sit down and say, okay, here's the, here's what we want to do in these type of areas. So we're going to authorize this type of, of trapping protocol. We're going to authorize this tra- type of lethal control in this area these are the parameters. This is how we want to go about doing it. This is how we can do it in a, a, a an effective way, a statistically valid way, a, a way that's actually going to move the needle for the long-term conservation effort. And then once we have uh, allowed you guys, the sportsmen, to go out there and do whatever the heck you can do, we're going to evaluate. If you guys are actually moving the needle and, and, and solving the problem, keep on going. Kudos to you. But at some point when it becomes, okay, you guys can't, further in this case you can't get to the some of these places where these these remnant mountain goats are we can't leave them on the mountain you know again i'm not going to argue the management strategy here or the or the management focus here but if there are a remnant population of mountain goats on the mountain that sportsmen can't get to okay then at that point maybe you go in with aerial gunning and you knock them down off the mountain but here's a situation where another lethal control of something that's competing with something else. And the government has no problem going in there and just waylaying the piss out of something. But it was sportsmen that finally pitched a fit and said, Hey, dang it. This, no, let us, let, let, let sportsmen have a shot at this. While they were initially successful, Their effort became riskier and less efficient over time as population was reduced and moved into harder to reach areas. So you're telling me sportsmen did reduce the population. They did move the needle on removing those animals off the landscape. Now, I don't have all the details of what I, I lost track of this one because it just wasn't in my wheelhouse on whether or not the animal, the, the, the people were actually even allowed to keep the animals. I don't, I don't even know. I'll have to, I'm sure somebody listening in on this knows full well, the, the, the topic. And if you are very versed in this, then, you know, reach out to me, send me a PM. Cause I'd love to, I would love to dive into this, um, and get the update on what really happened over there because I, I remember the controversy, but there's no reason why sportsmen can't do it. But here we are, here we are lethal control for a conservation effort. Why can't we? And, and again, here, here we are in a situation where, you know, it's not like the bighorn sheep are being hunted anyway. So here's the other one. So, so 
again, here here we are touching just in this one article or this one issue. Here we are talking numerous things about lethal control and where it's being applauded by state and federal, you know, state and federal agencies and conservation groups and researchers, academics, etc. But yet, when sportsmen want to talk about predator management, no, 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 it's all habitat. It's all habitat. Uh huh. Here's the other one that I talked about that I just thought was hilarious. And this one's gonna. This one has some overlap with some of the sportsmen's organizations out there. Okay. So first of all, out of Canada, breeding program is preserving marmots' genetics. The Vancouver Island marmot is one of Canada's most endangered mammals. Biologists are working to restore animals to the wild through a captive breeding program. But with as much with such a small population, scientists worry about their genetic diversity. However, researchers found that the marmots haven't experienced genetic diversity loss since the captive breeding captive breeding program began in the late 90s. Okay, so the late 90s. As an undergraduate at Vancouver Island University, researchers researcher Kimberly Barrett sequenced the genetics of Vancouver Island marmots using hair samples. Quote, kind of a CSI style, we extracted the DNA from those samples and sequest, sequenced those marmots' DNA, she said. Uh, or said Barrett, a lead author in a study published in Conservation Genetics in a press release. With that information, we were able to check in the marmots from a genetic perspective to see if there have been changes in their genetic diversity since the collapse of their population in the, year, in the early 2000s. They found no difference in the genetics between wild and captive populations, suggesting that efforts to preserve genetic diversity have been successful. There's the risk that low diversity means you may not be able to survive new, quote, there's the risk that low diversity means you may not be able to survive new threats like disease, and even if you can survive now, you may not be able to adapt tomorrow, said Vancouver Island University biology professor Jamie Gorel, or Gorel, Gorel. In 2003, Fewer than 30 Vancouver Island marmots remained in the wild. Since then, more than 530 have captive bred pups have been released. Captive. Taking a wild animal out of, uh, uh, out of the wild. Uh, let me rephrase it. A wild animal that has some conservation, preservation threats on the landscape where it is, it is increasingly likely that there's going to be difficulty maintaining a population in the wild and we want to recover that population or at least have a tool in the toolbox to whereby we can conserve that species on the landscape over time in the face of all these other threats while we try to get our hands wrapped around all these other threats and help try to preserve habitat etc 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 or maybe maybe we get wildlife services to go out there and waylay the piss out of measles predators Anyway, I digress. Um, captive breeding program. Taking the stuff out of the wild, bringing it into captivity, and then rearing it in captivity and turning it back out on the landscape. Not unlike what the federal government did with black-footed ferrets, um, where that population was dangerously low. They pulled the last remaining ferrets out of the landscape and they pulled them into captive breeding program and and they've done they've had some good success with that program and are now releasing ferrets back out on the landscape um especially you you folks that are live and 
like to play in Wyoming. That's ground zero for black-footed ferrets. All right, so here we are, captive breeding. All right. Let's see, what's what's the very next article? Okay, that's Canada. Okay, southeast, rare eastern indigo snake spotted in Alabama. A rare wild eastern indigo snake has been spotted in Alabama. It's It's only the second sighting since a reintroduction program started releasing captive raised snakes in the state in 2010. The young snake found in March, it quote, is the product of natural pairing among those purposefully released in the, oh, I'm going to butcher this one, Kanaka, Kanaka, C-O-N-C-O-N-E-C-U-H, C-O-N-E-C-U-H, National Forest. I don't know how to pronounce that. Sorry. Kanaka, Kanaka, I don't know. The Alabama Wildlife and Fisheries Division announced on its Facebook page, the reintroduction program's goal is to release 300 snakes into the wild from the Central Florida Zoo, where they're being raised. And more than eight feet long, eastern indigo snake uh, snakes are the longest snakes native to the United States. And, oh, that's actually, I didn't know that. More than eight feet long. Goodness. All right are the longest snakes native to the United States and were an apex predator that played an important role in the longleaf pine ecosystem before they were extirpated from the state in the 1950s. Um, apex predator of what? Turkey nests? <laughs> Mike, how many times has Dr. Mike Chamberlain talk about you know snakes being a predator on, on, on nests? Here we are in longleaf pine ecosystems. We're gonna put an we're gonna put an apex predator out there. I don't know. I'm I again. This is just me looking, reading over. I haven't do, I haven't done a deep dive into all these papers and these species. So I'm just this is just the surface level. And and if if this is hitting me at the surface level, I know damn well it's hitting the general public and and sportsmen. Okay, so it. Apex predator that played an important role in the longleaf pine ecosystem before they were extirpated from the state in 1950s. Outdoor Alabama writes, the first wild sighting after reintroduction efforts was in 2020. Before that sighting, the federally listed snake hadn't been spotted in Alabama wild for over 60 years. So here we are. We have another species. This is another non-game species that is was imperiled. They were concerned about its its longevity and persistence on the landscape. Uh, so they did a captive breeding program. They pulled wild animals into captivity, in a zoo in this case, bred them, and then are turning the little ones out back on the landscape and, and hoping they survive and um, repopulate the area. Like they, they just found that this young snake is a natural byproduct of, of natural pairings out in the landscape. Okay, cool. Right on. Right on. Awesome. Another captive rearing. All right. Let's go to the next, the very next article, like right next to it. So we, we started with Canada. Breeding program is preserving marmots. Okay. Southeast indigo snake captive breeding program. Okay. Let's go North Central. What is this? Iowa to track and conserve Blanding's turtles. We just talked about Blanding's turtles. Yes, we did. With wildlife wildlife services waylaying the piss out of mesopredators to protect nesting. Right? Well, the other thing that they were doing, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources is partnering with Iowa State University. 
and the Blank Park Zoo in Des Moines to track Blanding's turtles in hopes of finding ways to better conserve the state-endangered species. Just seven to nine inches long, the freshwater turtle faces a number of threats. Habitat loss and fragmentation have forced individuals to nest closer together. <laughs> I said turtle, right? I didn't say turkeys. Please tell me I said turtle. Turtle. Fresh, yes. Seven, yes. Freshwater turtles faces a number of threats. Habitat loss and fragmentation have forced individuals to nest closer together, giving predators easy ac easier access to larger numbers of nests. probably not anywhere near like what habitat changes are in the western plains along our river corridors where we have changes in cover that are focusing turkeys into more concentrated areas where maybe predators have a better ability to find them <coughs> anyway moving on um Habitat loss and fragmentation have forced individuals to nest closer together, giving predators easy, easier access to, to large, larger numbers of nests. One Iowa population faced further setbacks after a freak snowstorm hit in May 2009 while they were emerging from their wetland hibernacula. That does suck. Just like the hailstorm we just had the other day. I don't know how many turkey nests we lost on that one. Resulting in the deaths of more than 30 turtles. Blanding's turtles are now being considered for federal listing. Again, we're talking about an imperiled species here. We're talking about a non-game species. We're talking about potential, you know, federal intervention under TSA. Understand that that's a different level of designation, but the principle of the damned thing is such. Blanding, Blanding's turtles are now being considered for federal listing, but researchers in Iowa have had are having a hard time getting a sense of how well the species is doing in the state. Quote, we can find adults, said TWS member Karen Kincaid, Wildlife Diversity Program Coordinator for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, but, quote, it's so hard to find the juvenile tiny turtles, end quote. The project will collect adult female turtles before they lay eggs so biologists can then head start the hatchlings in captivity. So what did they just say? They're going to take females out of the wild, let the females give birth, or give birth, lay their eggs in captivity. Then the researchers, the government agencies, the zoos, or whoever, yeah, the zoo and the agency and researchers and academics are then going to raise the little turtles Give them a head start in captivity and then continue with the article. After a year or two, so they're going to keep these in captivity for a couple of years. After a year or two, they plan to release them into the wild as bigger, stronger juveniles and track them using radio telemetry. By tracking them, they hope to get a better picture of how they use the landscape. Quote, I think as a whole, we don't know a ton about the habitat needs of those really young turtles. End quote, she said. So, I, I literally, I literally could just keep flipping pages here. And there's just so, it's like a treasure trove of just, yeah. So here we have, we have three different examples here. Again, all non-game non species. Um, now granted, their, their status is a little bit more imperiled than others. But, oh, wait a minute. Didn't we have a conversation in the past? D didn't Howl.org put out a, 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 a call to action based on a presser 
from the National Wildlife Federation. And the, the it wasn't it also maybe the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. I'm sorry. Anytime you hear Wildlife Federation, I, I'm sorry. I National Wildlife Federation, no. Sportsman's organization, no. Just because an environmental organization puts on a camel hat does not make them a sportsman's organization, my opinion. But anyway, here's a press release about the fact that the state of Wyoming is authorizing a private individual to collect eggs of sage grouse out of the wild, bring them into captivity in hopes that they can perfect and raise sage grouse chicks in captivity and then be able to turn them loose on the landscape at a later date. That is being touted as the most travesty that can be ever... You, re, you don't do that. You don't privatize wildlife. You don't take wildlife out of the wild and bring them into captivity. You don't do that. And these, these evil people for evil profits. And, and we need to oppose. We need to rally, rally. Rubble, rubble, rubble. Saber rattling, saber rattling. We, we, need, to, we need to rally. You know, call your legislature. Get a hold of them and, 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 and click on this button and send an opposition letter in support of opposition of this. We need to reverse this. We can't, we can't allow you know, the, the conservation of sage grouse to be done this way. Huh? Zoos are doing it. You have no problem. And quite honestly, in that stupid presser, they even said, well, if, 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 like massive capital I, capital F, if, like not saying, but maybe if, if it was like, if, if we needed to do this, well, it should have been done by researchers. It should have been done by the government. It should have been done by a zoo. Why? So you get to play in the, in the sandbox? And that private individual can't? Why can't we have more private part, private public partnerships working for long-term conservation of species? Why can't we have academics? Why can't we have research our resource personnel, agency personnel embracing more private public partnerships on some of these? conservation issues. Now, it is increasing. Citizen science, you, you'll hear, and there was an article about this in a, in a recent one of these, again, the, the, the wildlife professional, and other places, you, you, citizen science is something that is, it's, it's a buzzword now. Um, it's not, I don't really think, well, I can't say that. It's not mainstream. Let's just put it that way. Citizen science right now it almost seems like it's anecdotal and it's it's incidental and it's it's a fun thing for urban people to do to feel like they belong in in wildlife conservation discussions. Okay, that's fine. I'm glad I'm glad we're getting the average Joe public involved with citizen science. Citizens helping out with legit science and or conservation. Colorado Department of Wild or Division of Wildlife back then or you know, Parks and Wildlife now they did this uh, every year, and I don't know if they still do, but they would have surveys. You know, they would want to go and survey otters, okay? So they would put together a massive volunteer. You know, you could volunteer, and we're, okay, so volunteers that want to go count otters and do otter observations. You know, the agency, the, the, the state agency did not have enough manpower to go out there and saturate and do a massive scale survey. And since otters are so mobile and... Um, yeah, can can show up here, show up there, show up here, show up. You know, it's all over the place. Having a bunch of people just go out and try to saturate it on a on a on a certain day, 
provides an index on what everybody saw. And you could track that sightings or non-sightings over time based on that similar pulse of survey effort uh, year after year after year. So they used citizen science. They used the average citizen to help in that research project, that monitoring project. Okay, There's no reason, in my opinion, why we can't have more of it. And if we're going to sit here and we're going to talk about, in one stinking publication, all the, all the praise worthy about taking, taking you know, threatened or endangered or worrisome you know, species of concern out of the wild, bringing them into captivity, raising them, hatching them, keeping, in this case, they're keeping them for a couple of years in captivity, and then they're going to turn them loose. But yet when it, when a private individual is brought to the table that wants to do it, oh hell no. Oh hell no. That's just that's just that's just not what science that's not what, what we do in the West. That's not what wildlife conservation is about. We don't privatize, you know, the you know, wildlife. Okay. We can have a conversation about what the end all be all is of the private, you know, what what we're gonna do with some of these. But we can talk about the fact that there are sometimes well, I, 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 I don't need I don't need to beat a dead horse. We can have a con we can have a conser, a, a conversation about how a private individual might go about doing conservation efforts of this nature. But we damned well better not call into question the practice in one arena while turning right around and, and lauding the, the exact same practice that someone else is doing on the landscape somewhere else, somewhere else for a different species. Is the, can, it's the principle of the damn thing. Okay? Can, can, we have an honest, can we have an honest discussion here? With the political agendas and, yeah, the, the, today it just seems like no. It just it it just frustrating. It's just frustrating. So anyway, I just thought I'd share some of those things because I I mean it's like one one issue, and I'm just flipping. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're flipping kidding me. You're kidding me. Are you seriously? You're kidding me. There's there's more talking about um, yeah Vermont and bald eagles. That one I think I might touch base back on because there's an issue. Uh, I, I think I am gonna jump on this this uh, lead ammunition ban. You know all the the stuff that. It's going on around there. Ah, oh, there's one that here's another one: anti-predator, anti-science, politically driven carnivore management in Idaho and Montana should worry wildlife professionals. Jeez, this one's going to be fun. Um, again, I just I I fear hypocrisy, but I want to go through it and and look at it. But there's just so much going on in the world of wildlife and sportsmen. Unfortunately, man. I don't know. I, I, I don't need to keep rambling. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm just, I, I need to close this book because otherwise I'm just going to keep going because I just saw another one about CWD and just, oh. <laughs> anyway, sportsmen, you guys are being used, man. You, you're being used. This goes back to what organizations do you support? What ones did you do you follow from a political standpoint that are, that are fighting for sportsmen's uh, interests? Well, who are the ones on the ground, boots on the ground? Who are the ones building the relationships? 
who are the ones actually having the conversations and who are the ones that are actually having honest conversations and sharing legitimate information with you, trying to educate you on, on issues, not just sensationalize things. And then when you look at some of the, you know, some of these things going on uh, out there and you hear different people talk about their value sets on, you know, in this case, we're talking about habitat management versus predator management versus, you know, culling versus whatever it is, different management strategies. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, what do you say? You're, you're going to have all sorts of people of different value sets that want to pull the the discussion in their own, in the direction of their own viewpoint. And I think it has hurt some of this, some of this polarization, some of this tribalism that we have even within the wildlife community, I think is hurting the credibility of some of uh, what we see being implemented on the landscape. And it's why you, there, in some cases, there is a lack of trust between sportsmen and agency personnel um, and academics and researchers, et, et cetera. Um, we've got to do better. We've got to do better. If, again, it's it's the principle of the damn thing. We, we, need to have, we need to have more honest conversations. There are some things that sportsmen cannot do. You're, that's absolutely right. There's some things that government can do that's a little bit better than what anybody else can do, just based on on the amount of money that they have and, and the resources and the personnel, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the sportsman and the average public can't be pulled in at a higher level of discussion, a higher level of involvement, and utilized as a tool for those agencies. A, a a a strategic tool for the agencies rather than just a, a checkbook and a bank book uh, to bankroll the agency's payroll and, and research budgets. Anyway, I'll kill it for there. I got to get this. I'll get this posted for you. I got to get some work done. Um, anyway, I just thought I'd share some of that. Just, it just, I don't know. I don't know if you, it, it just, it just struck me funny. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we're starting to get some rain, folks, and that's nice. I don't think it's. I, I'm not going to get my my hopes up from a for a from a standpoint of a long term change. Uh, right now, we're still in a drought cycle. We are still in a long term forecast to have above average temperatures, below average moisture, and probably more freaking wind. So it's still going to be a challenging spring. It's still going to be a challenging summer, definitely. Uh, but I'm just going to keep plugging along. I'll keep sharing what I'm doing on the landscape, what we're doing for our wildlife management out here. Um, and then, like I said, I'm going to start getting ready to do some of more, uh, some more elk stuff, elk related stuff, kicking that off June 4th, anybody that's in the Kansas city area, Eastern Kansas area, Western Missouri area, you want to come in and, and sit down for an evening and, uh, chew the fat on some elk stuff. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what I talked about at the Denver International Sportsman's Expo show in Denver. Um, how many times did I just say Denver? Yeah, Denver, Colorado, International Sportsman's Expo. Um, we're going to talk about what it, you know. You're doing all your off-season prep. You're doing all of the, all the stuff that you're doing in the off-season right now to get yourself ready for elk season and, and try to put yourself the best foot forward and maximize your your 
chance of success on the landscape. But there are certain things that I see a lot of us doing each year in the field in during our hunt that is absolutely shooting you in the foot and negating your all of the efforts that you're doing in the off season. It's just, that's why I had entitled it what it is. You're defeated before you even start. You, you started off with a great plan. You started off with good intentions and, and, and you started off, you started off and then you didn't follow through. It, it's not that you did, you, that it's not anything malicious. It's not, it just, maybe you didn't even think about some of these things. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, okay, what, what is, what is hindering you from actually seeing you, your preseason efforts, your off season efforts, actually moving the needle on your success in the field each fall elk hunting. All right. Now, granted, I focus a lot on bow hunting. So that is what the, the focus of the, the, the direction of the conversation is going to be is, is bow hunters, but this is going to absolutely dovetail into what muzzleloader hunters are dealing with, especially, uh, early, the first season of rifle season, you know, early season rifle, you know, it, all of it will pertain to anybody and whatever elk hunting you're going to be doing. However, a lot of the conversation is going to be couched around uh, bow hunting. But regardless, if you want to come out, uh, it's Overton's Archery Center in Lawrence. Um, great shop. John is a good friend. Uh, he always puts on a good good seminar there or good uh, venue there. So, um yeah, and it's it's going to be co-hosted with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation from the folks over there. Good guys. So, yeah, come on out June 4th, Overton's Archery Center. I think we're going to kick it off at about 7 p.m. I'll be there several hours early, uh, but we'll kick it off at 7 p.m. and we'll just have a good, fun conversation. Then we'll just keep it open for, for questions as long as uh, John wants to keep the doors open and we can keep our eyes open. Usually, it's, usually we go quite late into the evening it's it's usually a good time so anyway hope to see you there until next time uh and and i will i so again i i talked about this last time i appreciate all the, the support with for this podcast i yes keep saying I've, I've got i'm how do i want to put this i've got a notebook now like you guys keep sending topics and, and interesting cool stuff and ideas and I, i'm just i just keep filing them i just keep stacking them. i'm getting to the point now where I like like this. Like when I first opened this magazine up uh, last week, and I saw that I there was I instantly wanted to just jump into the studio and just start going on some of the things that I was thinking about. And with the volume of different topics that we could talk about, I might have to start making this more of a priority. I, I might have to figure out how to monetize this sucker and actually turn it into my job because there's a lot to cover. And it would be fun. And I've got a list of people I need to call, a list of people that I need to interview um, and have a discussion with. And I'm trying. I, I, I'm just I'm trying to scramble to get my um, all my spring projects done. And I'm just going to keep fitting this in. Well, you know, keep doing the, the podcast and, and trying to get them out to you on Mondays. Um, and then if I have time during the week as we progress into the summer, I'm going to I'll, I'll start maybe doing some more. So if you enjoy this, hey, let me know. Click the likes and follows and everything. Let your let your buddies know. And if you are so inclined, uh, wherever you are on your podcast listening, if you don't mind, go over. Give it a, 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 a give it an honest rating. You know what? I, everybody says get a five star rating. Sure, I want a five star rating. But if you gave it a three, but you but you but you 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 put some like actual thought in there, and you're like, okay, I like it because of this this and but I wish he would do this this. 
That's constructive criticism, man. I absolutely so give it an honest rating. Sure, I would love a five star rating or whatever you know, whatever the highest rating is wherever you listen to. I would love it. It would it would it would help me out. It would it would make it easier for other people to find it. Blah blah blah. But give it an honest rating, okay? That's all I can ask. That's really all I can ask. So, alrighty. Hope you guys have a good rest of your Monday, good rest of the week. I am going to try to get some stuff done. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, and then until next time, yeah, talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye.